0: Well, we are going to continue in the series. Like I said, I kicked off last week, not the big Bernie. It is the big story. The big story. If you missed last week, you don't understand that joke. That's fine. (laughs) Okay? But uh, we are continuing in this series. Uh, If you were not here last week, I, I used the illustration of a fake artificial Christmas tree. Some of you use these kind of artificial Christmas trees during the Christmas season. And I said, sometimes approaching the Bible is like this. You know, when you have a tree, you know, the most important part is the trunk. Because if you don't have the trunk, you just have a box full of branches. And the whole point of a tree is that you take the branches and one at a time, you know, you stick the little branches in the thing. And in time, it begins to build this full tree and you see the shape. Oh, that's what's going on here. But without it, again, you just got this box full of branches. And some of them might be pretty, but they don't really make any sense to you. And I said, as we approach scripture, very often it's the same way. For many of us, we don't really understand. We don't have a trunk. We don't understand how these branches fit together. We're just walking around accumulating branches. You hear a good sermon. Oh, that's a good sermon. I like that. You know, you you read that devotional. Oh, that's good. I read a little passage. Oh, that's good. And I just keep accumulating branches. So I've got a box full of them, but I don't understand how they fit together. And I said, there's two dangers with that. Number one is what? If you don't know how they fit together, then you only take the branches that you like right you might not understand this is a critical branch to the tree but if you don't understand it's building a tree you're like I don't like that branch so you don't take it into your box right but I said in the same way we ask the wrong question a lot of times when it comes here's the question that we ask where does God fit into my story rather than where do I fit into his and that's the call of a follower of Christ the follower of Christ is not you know invite Jesus into your heart Now that's a nice phrase that we teach children because it helps them to understand. And the principle is the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But unfortunately, we get the mindset that says, God is joining my life rather than I'm joining his kingdom. And that's a biblical perspective, that we are called to enter his kingdom, to surrender our life, to lay ourselves down. You remember this past fall? We used the illustration of the solar system. It's all centered around him. It's his thing, not our thing. All right? And so we get into this. Uh, Last week, if you missed the message as we kind of kicked off, it was kind of a setup message, and we talked and we answered the question, what is the Bible, you know? And I said the starting point is we absolutely believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, absolutely, him speaking to us. We value the word heavily, but if that's all we understand, sometimes we can approach the scripture in the wrong way. And so we looked at it from a few other angles last week to understand more fully what is this Bible and how is it supposed to speak to us. If you missed last week's message, I would encourage you, make sure you go back and watch that message. But there's two things you need to understand as we walk through this, because we're gonna begin an eight-week journey now. I'm trying to break this big story up into eight weeks. So some of you are gonna be saying, well, you didn't talk about this. You're right. I'm gonna have to cut a lot out, okay? (laughs) This is how it is. This is a big story, okay? So so just understand that we're gonna do the best we can to break this up and and take, you know, hopefully at the end of this year, you'll be able to take this away and be like, oh, I make sense of it in my mind, okay? Uh, But the other thing I want you to understand is, is how this story constantly points us to Jesus. Remember last week? The Sunday school answer is right. It's Jesus. He is the one that God is desiring to to allow him to reveal himself through this Christ, and everything in scripture is pointing to him, all right? So if you got your Bibles, let's begin. Turn to page number one in the story, all right? (laughs) Page number one, Genesis chapter one. Beginning in verse number one, as you're turning there, just a reminder, we're in our Bible reading plan. If you haven't jumped in, we got like 110 people that are following the U version plan. Go to our website right at the top, click the link. You can join in on that. Otherwise, would you stand with me across the room? It's our tradition around here. Again, nothing sacred about standing. We just do that to say, God, we value your word above my words. It's his authority, not mine, all right? And so we say, God, would you speak to us? Genesis chapter one, verse one says this. In the beginning... God. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And in these few words, Father, I believe that you are revealing a revolutionary understanding of all things. So God, would you speak to our hearts today? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I said we're going to start with the timeline, all right? We're going to give a little bit of a timeline. We're going to work our way through things. And so this first number week, we're starting with beginnings. I'm labeling this section. Beginnings, in fact, that's what the word Genesis means. It's beginning, the talking about the beginning. It starts, it's actually based off of that first word that we have. And so this scripture begins, I know I read this super deep passage to you, in the beginning, God. In our English translations, that is four words. In the Hebrew, that's only two. In the beginning, God. And I will say this, there may be no more profound words in the entire scripture than that. All right? The early church fathers spent more time preaching out of the first few chapters of Genesis than anywhere else in scripture. Why? Because the reality of these first few moments reveals stuff that flies in the face of our natural instincts. I shared this a few weeks ago. Remember, when you got a two-year-old, what's the thing you don't have to teach a two-year-old how to say? Mine. Mine, right? You don't have to teach a kid to say that. Right, it's like the, the, the seagulls in Nemo, right? Mine, 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 mine. Yeah, like that's what every kid says. And every adult, we act the same way, don't we? Like mine, like I wanna do things my way. Like when I wake up in the morning, I care about me. That's how I live, right? That's normal to us. And then think of the society that we live in. They're telling us it's all about us, right? everything in society says you deserve this you're that good everything should be customized around you your cell phone should be ordered just the way you like it everything it's about you that's the world we live in and then you think about the the way our society thinks and it's it's all about the tangible the things we can touch the things that we can feel some of you who are a little bit older would know the name Carl Sagan Carl wrote, a scientist from back several decades ago, he wrote a book called The Cosmos, did a whole series on the Cosmos back in like the 70s and 80s, and there was a, a famous quote that he said, the universe is all there ever was, all there ever is, and all there ever will be. And this is the mindset of our world, right? And in the face of all of this stands the first two words in Hebrew, in the beginning, God. Like this is a bold claim, I know that we, we operate in our lives like it's just the stuff here. You live your life. You carry on with your life like it's just the stuff you got going. I do my work. I do this. I do that or whatever. That's whatever. Listen, in the beginning, God, he's above all things. He's before all things. Like we can get so lost in the here and now, but there is someone greater, someone whose story is being written before creation, before there was anything. It was God. We aren't the center of the world. We aren't. We feel like it, we want to be, but we aren't. This isn't our story. It's his that he is inviting us into, in the beginning, God, all right? But before we go any further into this, I want to ask the question we always say, what is the context? What is the context, right? We do a, a decent job when we get into the New Testament talking about context. Especially when we get into the letters in the New Testament because most of the letters say, hi, I'm Paul. I'm writing to these people. Like, sweet. I know who wrote it and who he's writing to. We don't do a very good job when we go into the Old Testament. We just start grabbing books and start reading them, and we don't always know the context. So I want to just give us a little bit of context here in the book of Genesis. Genesis is attributed consistently throughout the rest of Scripture as being written by Moses, all right? That's what scripture affirms over and over and over again. This was written by Moses and Moses would be writing these words for the Israelites following their escape from Egypt. We're gonna talk about that in a couple of weeks, all right? They've escaped from Egypt and and most likely when he ascends to the hill and God reveals himself, he gives the word, he gives all of this, the the law and all this stuff is given to Moses on behalf of the people, right? The Israelites, think about it. They have just spent 400 years years being indoctrinated with Egyptian theology, right? 400 years, 400 years, okay? And they have an Egyptian worldview, they have an understanding of their many gods, of their view of creation, their understanding of humanity, all of these things, and Genesis is confronting every single one of those things to to reveal the one true God. That is what's going on here in Genesis. Now, there's a few things you need to understand. In the beginning, God, God, created the heavens and the earth now creation for these other ancient near east cultures they saw divinity in everything right sun god there's a the moon god there's the, you know there's gods and every, everything's a god right they referred to the, all of creation as he's and she's because they are divine in some extent you know what the scriptures teach it's all an it okay There is no divinity. It's not that we're not worshiping the sun. The sun was created by the one who has all authority and all power, okay? It's a different type of creation. Like this isn't what they were used to. This isn't how they saw things. It flies in the face of what they believed to be true at the time. There's something else that we see happen over and over. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's this picture of kind of this watery chaos thing, right? There's creation that's occurred, but there's kind of a chaos that's going on. And what we're going to see over these days of creation is God bringing order, separating, being division, right? And we see him assigning purpose to all things. I want to ask you a question. Do you, know, you want to know what in ancient Near East cultures, what they believed the one that they thought had the most power? It was the ones who could divide, bring order, and assign purpose. And so what we see here right out of the gates is that, that Moses, on, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is revealing the realities of a God that flies in the face of everything these people understood. And what we need to understand is the same thing. We approach Genesis 1 so often asking the question, how? But the, the biggest intent is the who. Who is this God? Who is this God that, that no one else could comprehend, that's above and all? And I would say this for us in a world that is full of chaos. Anybody feel the chaos? Right, You feel the disorder. You recognize that things are broken. We recognize there is a God over it all, a God who is firm, a God that we can plant ourselves on. That's what the hope of Genesis 1 preaches louder than anything else. In the beginning, God. All right? So we go on with the creation story here. Day six. It says this in verse number 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This idea of God creating, we see in chapter two that God literally breathed in. I think for some of us, we grew up thinking that God was the life sucker. The reality is he's the life giver, okay? Like, he's the one desiring to breathe life into our every circumstance, right? But what does this mean to say that we were made in the image of God? I think this is a highly important thing, like, it's been debated and talked about and wrestled with for centuries. What does it fully mean to be made in the image of God? Like, how I many of you ever use the phrase spittin' image? Somebody's in the spittin' image of somebody else, right? Some of you like a spitting image of your parents, right? For me, I've got some kids that they're, you know, in some ways, they're a spittin' image of me. And sometimes that's really bad, right? <laughs> right, you, you know that. When you have kids, like, there's like, oh, they did it just like Dad, and oh no, they did it just like Dad, right? <laughs> there's those moments I don't feel good about the fact that they're a spitting image of me. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Um, You know, for many, it's the value of human life, the fact that there is dignity, that there's a special creation that is taking place here. Separate from all of the other creation, it's clear that this is a special creation. But there's also something else. Because immediately, uh, God assigns purpose to mankind. What does he say? You're to rule and to reign over this creation. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule, subdue the earth. Oversee the earth. You see, what's going on here is that God is entrusting this created order, this creation to mankind. That under his authority, they are to operate under his spiritual authority in his headship, but he is entrusting this creation to man, to, to steward, to take care of, to guard on behalf of God. This is part of the call of mankind. And it is, it is through that that we recognize that is part of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we rule on his behalf over the creation under his authority. Now we continue in that, and we get to day number seven. And it says, what does God do? Takes a nap, right? That's what it says. No, it doesn't say that. It says he rests. God rests. And I do think that's what we think about. Oh, God worked so hard, he had to be tired, right? He's just so exhausted, he had to take a nap which makes no sense when a God is all-powerful, right? Like the the fact that he's got to rest, that's what it is. You know what it means in ancient Near East culture when a king is at rest? It means that everything, there is no battles left to fight. Everything is under his authority and his control. And so what we see taking place on day number seven is we see God of all creation, who has just created all things, established order, separated, brought division, assigned purpose, created all things brought up mankind, entrusted this creation of earth into their hands, said, you are going to rule and reign on my behalf, under my authority. And now we have the God of the universe resting, saying, here it is. My kingdom, it's mine, it's my order. All things are good, beautiful, perfect. There's no pain, there's no disease, there's no injustice. All things are as they are supposed to be. That's what happens at the end of the week. Okay? And if you don't understand that that's the picture that's being created then we can oftentimes misunderstand where this thing is heading, okay? Because oftentimes when we look to the end, we get to the end of the story, what do we think? Fat babies like it's an Angel Soft commercial. You know what I'm saying? Right, little fat babies with wings like it's an Angel Soft commercial. Oh, we're gonna float in the clouds. We're gonna play you know, harps and that's what it means. That's where this thing is headed. That's not where it's headed. When you get to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, where is it taking us? It's taking us back to a garden image of this created order, in perfect order, God ruling and reigning once again over his authority, with his authority, to all things. There is no pain, no injustice, no sickness, no disease, nothing, right? That's where we're heading. That's the end goal. That's the game. That's what we're trying to shoot for, okay? The problem is we gotta turn to page number two. Okay? Turn to, you can look at chapter number three in Genesis. We get to the story of Adam and Eve. Now, I think a lot of us, um, if I were to say there's two halves of your Bible, what are the two halves of our Bibles? We've got the Old Testament and we got the New Testament, right? I would say that there's another way that you could look at the Bible. Genesis chapters one through three and everything else. Okay? Because in Genesis 1 through 3, what do we get? We get the beginning, we get God's plan, we get a problem and the destruction that takes place, and we get the consequences of that, and the rest of the Bible is God redeeming and restoring all of mankind, not just individuals, but all of mankind and all of creation back to its intended purpose. That's the story of scripture. If you wanted to sum it up in the smallest way, it is a story of redemption and restoration of all things. All right? It's not just you and your personal relationship with Jesus. Although that is vital, it is even bigger than that, okay? So we get to the story of Adam and Eve naked in a garden. And I was thinking about it. It's, like, it's kind of like quarantine because you're by yourself, so why bother wearing pants, you know? <laughs> like, what's the point? Just, okay. <laughs> Whatever. Woo! Yeah, right. <laughs> Here we go. It's a party, everybody. All right. So we got this, we got Adam and Eve. All right. And, and there's two trees that get placed in this garden. You know the story. We got the tree of life. Doesn't say anything else about that, but then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, don't eat that one. Don't eat from it. Why? Because you will surely die. He said that. He, he, he gave them the clear warning, and so as we know, the story goes, right? Eve, she ends up going to the tree. A serpent begins speaking, and you got to hear this. What's the first thing the serpent does? First thing he does is try to get you to question what God said. And some of you need to hear that. That was what the serpent said. Did he really say that? See, hear this. For a lot of us, we're like, oh, I'm good. Like, I don't get caught in sin because I don't do any of that crazy stuff. Listen, the enemy is not trying to get you into crazy stuff. He's just trying to get you a little off. Just a little. Because if he can get you just a little off, you play that thing out a few years, you're a long ways away from where you should have been. Okay? And some of you are non because you know exactly what I'm talking about. you got to be careful. The enemy wants to bring destruction. That's his purpose. That's his desire. He doesn't create. He destroys. That's all he can do. He is not God. In the beginning, God. He ain't God. Sometimes we give, the, we give the devil way too much authority and power. As if he is God. He does not create. He destroys. We serve the God who has the power and the authority, okay? And so the serpent says, hey, well, did he really say this? And in a moment, Eve says the thing that we've been saying ever since. I'm going to do things my way. I think God's holding out on me. We think about God as being the God of the constraints. We don't serve the God of the constraints, we serve the God of the restraints. His, his word is meant to restrain us from endangering ourselves, not to constrain us and keep us away from the fun stuff, okay? This world is looking to destroy us, absolutely. If you wanna be destroyed, just keep doing all the stuff they tell you to do, that's fine. But God desires to to put protective measures around it, just like my kids. I don't stick them in my car and don't buckle their seatbelts. I buckle them because I care about them, not because I'm trying to hurt them. And this is what God does. He cares for us. But she says, no, I'm gonna do things my way. And that's what we say ever since. I'm gonna do things my way. I know better. I know what's going on. I'm smarter than God. I understand what's best. And so it says they both eat. And you know the story. In a moment, everything changes. Everything changes. Remember this picture, this beautiful picture of beauty, no chaos, there's order, all this kind of stuff. Immediately, everything is broken. Everything changes. There's infighting. There's shame that comes on them. They realize their nakedness immediately, like they try to cover themselves up with fig leaves, and they go hiding, because they hear God walking through, through the garden, and they go hiding in the, in the bushes, in the trees, to get away from God. And I love this moment, because God is, it says he's walking through, and what do you say? Where are you? where are you? Did he ask that question for them? He knew where they were. He asked it for them to know, hey, hey, would you you come out? Quit hiding there. Where are you? And so this is the moment that every man would probably do the exact same thing, right? If you know the story, what does he do? I'm blaming the woman, right? (laughs) It's her fault. That woman you stuck with me, it was her fault. I was just trying to be a good husband. You know, you told me I'm supposed to love her as Christ loved the church. Blah, 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 blah. He blames the woman, and, and, and God says, what have you done, right? What have you done? You have no idea the consequence of what you just did. You need to hear this. Sin has consequences, okay? It does. It just does. A lot of times, we, think, we know the passage, right? The famous passage, for the wages of sin is death. And we, oftentimes we think about it as some eternal death that's out there someday that we're going to experience. What you don't understand is it has death for you right now. Like it produces death in your life. Anywhere you have allowed sin in your life, I guarantee you could point out all the death you've experienced, the relational death, the financial death you've experienced, whatever it is, there is death all over the place. And God is saying, listen, there is so much death that is going to come because of this decision. And he begins to go through all the consequences. It's not just the consequences of individual lives, but the the consequence for all of humanity, the consequences for the created order. It has been frustrated because of sin entering the world. That's part of this story that we're in, right? So God says, hey, this is where we're at. But I love in the midst of this where he talks about all the, the consequences. It's the first time we see Jesus. If you know the story, what does it say? It said that one day a seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head and it's going to strike at his heel. And it's this picture of the suffering servant, this picture of the one as we see in Isaiah 53, this Jesus who would someday come, who would wipe away sin. Oh, he would be ble- bleeding and, and broken in the process, but he absolutely is going to deal with the problem. And in the midst of this thing where God's saying, hey, there's all the consequences, all the consequences, but... I'm going to take care of things. The story's not fully finished yet, right? And so we have the story. And if you don't understand up until this point of Scripture, if you don't get the fact that there is this beautiful creation that's ordered the way it is and that that's the goal of where we're supposed to head at the end, if you don't get the reality of sin and the consequence of sin and what it produces, not just in your personal life, but for all mankind and for all eternity, if you don't get that, then you have no reason to believe you need a Savior right? We think, I'm fine, right? Most of us go around our lives thinking, like, I'm doing pretty fine. Like, I'm okay. Like, I don't love everything in my life. I don't hate everything in my life. I think I'm doing okay. I'm a pretty nice person, right? And that's fine, but it's not true. Listen, scripture isn't trying to teach us that, that we are bad people who need to be made good. We are dead people that need to be made alive, all right? and we we're walking around, we we're good-looking corpses sometimes, but we are in desperate need of a Savior to save us, to breathe life into us, to make us new, to experience his Zoe life, this eternal life that only comes through Christ. This is the point that we start with, all right? So uh, I want to wrap this thing up here this morning, and I want to get a little practical with us, and I want to start with the, the big so what here, and we say this every week, so what, what's the point of this thing? If you forget everything else, if you've been sleeping while I've been preaching, wake yourself up, wake your neighbor up, here's the big so what this morning, it's this. We'll get there, there it is. Oh, it's not coming up for some, oh, it's over there. Huh. I'm gonna look over there. God <laughs> pursues sinners. Now for some of you, that sounds like really bad news, Right? your perception of god is he's gonna get you right It's god playing divine whack-a-mole with you just walking around just whack you over the head every time you do something wrong god pursues you're like that's why i don't want to come i don't go to church because i'm afraid he's gonna get me i'm gonna get struck by lightning hear this the only hope you have is that god pursues sinners because the reality of scripture is this we are dead And you can't make yourself undead, all right? This isn't a zombie movie. There is no thing of, like, I'm going to come up. No, you are dead. You can't save yourself. You can't redeem yourself. You can't fix it. The only hope we have is that God would come and do something on our behalf that we can't figure out, all right? And that's where the gospel becomes good news. It starts accepting the bad news and receiving the good news. What did Jesus say? I came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the heartbeat of God, that he pursues sinners, that in the middle of a story where he's breathing out all of the consequences of sin, he says, yes, but one day, one day I will send my son to deal with what you can never deal with for yourself. All right? There's a little detail at the end of this story. It's one of my favorite little details in this story. Most people just kind of gloss right over this. Chapter 3, verse number 21. After all the consequences had come, he's had all these things. says, Adam, or uh, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And I love this moment because, first off, we see just a picture of the tenderness of our God. Like, just think about the, the gravity of what's just taken place. And yet, this God, creator God of all things, is still personal enough to make clothing for Adam and Eve and to clothe them. But it's also a picture of what God does for us through Christ. Because what does it say in Philippians? It says, When we put our faith in Christ, the righteousness of God. Is given to us it's laid on us just like that garment wrapped over Adam and Eve's bodies the righteousness of Christ is put on us not because we deserve it not because we're so good not because we've earned it in some way but by placing our faith and trust in submitting our lives to God he gives us a status we could never earn for ourselves he looks at us not based on our righteousness but on the righteousness of Christ That's the beauty of the gospel. And for some of you here this morning, you've been walking and trying to do church things, right? You're trying to be a good person. Listen, your hope is not to be a better person. Your hope is to surrender your life to Christ and to receive what you could never earn for yourself. That's the hope of the gospel. And so this morning, I'm gonna give some of you an opportunity to respond to him, to place your faith in him, to receive the gift of salvation. But I wanna talk to everybody else for a second. because there's a scene a little bit earlier in this story, right? Adam and Eve went the wrong way. And after that happened, what happened? They were filled with shame, and they hid. And here's the reality for many of us. That's exactly what we do. Some of you are here this morning, you say, I'm a follower of Jesus. But the truth is that you've got stuff in your life that it causes you to feel that shame. That sometimes when we allow sin into our lives, some of you know what I'm talking about. There's those things that you just don't talk about. You don't bring it out because you're afraid. You're ashamed of it. You don't bring it before God. You don't bring it before other people because you're ashamed of it. And the result is you're just hiding. And God would say this, where are you? Where are you? Just, just come here. For some of you, it's, it's not even those massive sin issues. For some of you, it's a good thing. Why? Because God has spoken things into your life, He's called you. You know it. There's been a burden in your heart to do something, and yet you've never responded. And because you've never done what God asked you to do, you have this sense of shame in your heart, and you're afraid to come to Him because you're like, "Ah, I know I'm not doing what He's called me to, and I'd rather stay away." You hear this. Hear the heart of a God who loves you despite yourself. Where are you? Would you come? I would say this, there's some of you who have gone through painful circumstances, painful circumstances that aren't of your doing. Some of you have experienced abuse. Some of you have experienced leaders hurting you. You've experienced that, and you feel the shame of that as if it's something you did. And it's so easy when we have shame to say, we wanna just hide. I just don't want anyone to know that. God just would say to you with the love that he has for every one of you, He cares for you deeply, and he would say, where are you? Would you just turn to me again? Would you just open your heart again to me? Would you lay yourself down before me? Some of us need that. God loves you deeply. God pursues sinners, not to whack you over the head, but to restore, to redeem, and to breathe life where death has reigned. And my prayer this morning for every single one of us is that that we would respond to him. I'm gonna pray for us in a moment, but before we do that, I would like to invite all of us just to stand across the room. If you're online, just get in a posture of worship as we're gonna take a moment to respond today. I told Steph where we were going and she had this song, and I'm like, that's the song we gotta sing. Because I wanna create an altar moment for the next few minutes here. I want us to, to respond to God together. And uh, this song just simply gives you an opportunity to say, God, I'm yours. I'm all yours. I don't want to hold anything back. And so as we sing this, you know, the the goal is not to recite lyrics right now. The goal is to respond to God. And so if you need to come to this altar and get on your knees, do it. If you need to get on your knees right where you're at, do it. If you need to just pray during this time, do that. But my my desire is that we would say, God, shine a light on me. Shine a light on any areas in my heart, Father, where I've been hiding from you. I've not been opening, I've been living in shame, God. God, I want to respond to you. Remember what repentance is. Repentance isn't just turning away from something, it's turning toward God. And so there's areas in your life where maybe you've repented, but you've never turned toward God, actually, in that area. Say, God, I bring it into full, it's all yours. I give it to you. This is that moment for you, all right? And so across the room, I just want to pray for you before we worship God. We give you these next few moments. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. You'd call us back to yourself in a deep way that we would see you, that we would know you, and we would sense your heart. You are not the heart that desires to hurt. You are the heart that desires to heal. Thank you for that, God.